What is going on? It is another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Another edition of Canucks Talk, another uh, familiar feeling edition of Canucks Talk, Thomas Strantz, following a... 5-2 loss you by going, the Canucks to the You going Bo Burnham on us? Like, there it is again, that funny feeling? <laughs> doesn't, it, doesn't it feel like back to square one, right? Yeah, I don't know. No, it doesn't. You know what? It doesn't. We're 10 games in now. We're 10 games yeah. in. I mean, this team won two in a row. They played one good game against the Pittsburgh Penguins. I think they've now played two good games in their, out of 10. And they've won two games. So it's not just that they're 2-8. and eight. It's that their full value for that two and eight, you know, that's frustrating. That's really frustrating. Like this is unfortunate, particularly because there's a lot that we can glom onto as fake positives from that performance last night, right? They were fine five on five. They actually, like, I will say this, they held up better against the devils than I expected them to. And yet with 15 minutes remaining, I was talking to, Jeff Patterson in the press box, and we started noting, hey, you know, this team could be the first team in this uh, this season to record 25 shots against this devil's machine. And then they had three the rest of the way. Three in 15 minutes, right? I mean, they were beaten soundly by a team that had their worst game of the season, and there was still no suspense. You know, the power play ventilated the Canucks, Two cross-seam passes in, in quick succession to set up a tap-in backdoor, right? The fourth-line move that resulted in the second goal, which, by the way, Quinn Hughes got a piece of. The, the angle got changed on the initial shot, which Demko saves, spilling the rebound right into the crease where there's no box out. And the defender has an easy tap, or sorry, the offensive player has an easy tap. And, and that comes after a couple of missed or lost battles behind the net, right, to even set up that shot in the first place. It's not just, yeah, it's not, right, it's it's that the fourth line exited with so much speed, made 12 consecutive passes, and won like three 50-50 battles in the Canucks' end of the rink, against, by the way, Vancouver's top pair, to, to set that up, right? And then you've got Sharon Govich and, and Mercer combining back-to-back quick succession off of Miller and Pod Colson breakaways right at their own blue and boom, 4 nothing. No chance. Now we're in crusty burglar territory. Stop, stop. They're already dead. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really like the Canucks did some good things. They did some poor things. They made too many mistakes. It was so apparent, even as the Devils put together their worst, their worst 60-minute performance of the year by a lot. That they're in a totally different weight class. The Devils are in a totally different weight class. Four years ago, the Canucks were well ahead of the Devils in terms of their rebuild, in terms of their accumulation of young talent. Four years later, the Canucks aren't in the same weight class. This was an unfair fight. A brutally unfair fight. And yeah, the Canucks made mistakes, and they also played okay. And their forecheck was pretty good. And there were things you could point to. I liked Ethan Bear's debut, for the most part. I thought there were good moments there. He showed at least how his mobility can help, right? 
And yet, I mean, what? <laughs> it, you can't watch that game and ignore. Like, do you buy the Devils? If I told you the Devils are a Stanley Cup contender, would you buy that? No. Because no! Largely because of the goaltending. And just a little skepticism that the level we've seen will continue throughout the year. So, sure. no, I wouldn't right now. I, I, By the way, I think that's reasonable. Would you buy that they're a top 10 team, or would you even fade that and say they're probably on the fringes? I'd probably have them as a top 10 team. Probably, but, but yeah, like lower like end. 8 to 10, something yeah. like that, certainly, just off the top of my head. Certainly, as if you're reeling off the teams you consider contenders, they're coming well after, like, Boston. Oh, yeah. Right? But, but probably ahead of Pittsburgh right now. So, sort of in that mix, you know, 8 to 12, in that range, right? We're not talking about the back-to-back Stanley Cup champions. We're not talking about the Colorado Avalanche. We're not talking about Vegas renewed, right? We're not even talking about Carolina. We're talking about the Devils, somewhere between the 8th and the 12th best team in the league, according to our consensus that we've just reached. (laughs) Yes, our ironclad consensus. Coming into Vancouver, playing badly, and running Vancouver off their own ice sheet. I I mean, at what point... At what point do we stop pretending that any of this is normal or acceptable? At what point do we just face that this team isn't good enough? We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Let us know your thoughts, your reaction to another Canucks loss. I like the shows where we do a cold open yes. that is just an... And then in, I start paying the bills. It's just an inconsolable dance rant. <laughs> <laughs> and then you chime in like, hey, uh, structure to the program. <laughs> well, 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 well I just shake my head off to the corner. So there were so many of the same issues that we're so familiar with at this point on display, right? Like the lack of composure, the big moments, the big breakdowns, the odd man rushes, the, the horrific third period. The, 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 uh, the, the brutal seven seconds on the PK. Whew. Right, they're down 4-1 going into the third. You get outshot 13-2 at 5-on-5 five five in don't, that period. Don't forget the shorthanded goal against. Shorthanded goal against. And yet, through all that, as you said, you know, through maybe half the game, you could look at this and say, hey, you know what? Canucks holding up all right at 5-on-5. Five five. They're exceeding expectations at even strength. But even that. <laughs> yeah, if we're saying that, our expectations are way too low, That's the thing. Right? How, low, how much are we going to lower the bar here? Even the, the, the theoretical, well, they actually did pretty well through half of the game. It wasn't about them looking dangerous. No. It wasn't about them looking good. It was about them kind of slowing things down and limiting what New Jersey was doing. And we came on, you know, a lot of people <laughs> said after the Pittsburgh game, well, that was their best game of the season. No argument here. It was their best game of the season. Did they look like a high-octane, dangerous team? a dominant team against Pittsburgh? Or did they look like a team that frustrated Pittsburgh and kind of just made it a low-event game and kept things from really having any flow? It was the latter. That's the highest bar they have hit this year, Drancer. Have they had a single 10-minute stretch? I'm not even talking about a period. A single 10-minute stretch where it's been, wow, heavy shift after heavy shift. This team looks really dangerous. They They are dominating this game right now. Nope. They haven't. Nope. And we're 10 games in. We're 10 games in. And the best stretch, the best, the, ja- the pinnacle of their hockey. Jamie, it's only 10 games. The pinnacle of their <laughs> hockey dancer is, you know, that was pretty low event. They held the other team in check. That's the best Ugh. we've got through 10 games. That's the kind of standard you hold. 
like a bottom five team in the league too, right? Like the Arizona Coyotes or the Montreal Canadiens. Hey, you know what? They gave that team a good run. They really, they they held in there for 40 minutes. Good for them. They worked pretty hard. And by the way, I thought the Canucks worked pretty hard last night for the most part. Certainly early in the game. Yeah. Again, their effort level outside of the third period against Buffalo has not really been the problem. But like, that's the type of team that we normally give those accolades to. Hey, that was a good job of, you know, really mucking up the middle and keeping the team to the outside. And, you know, they held in there. The other team won eventually, yeah. but they held in there. Their forecheck played. Their forecheck really disrupted a faster team. Hey, you can build on that. You're right. It's it's pathetic. Our, our colleague at Sportsnet, Eric Engels, I saw his column on Montreal. I think they lost uh, last night, but his column was, you know, that was a really impressive loss from a young team. They hung in it, and, you know, they didn't get it done, but they played really well, and they lost. Like, but we all understand Montreal is different, very different in terms of what their goals are this year and what they're trying to accomplish. What their posture And their is. salary cap flexibility and all of that. They can have games like that, and it's okay, and it's actually a positive. It can actually be a fun thing for the team. The Canucks are not in that position in any way, shape, or form for that to be the standard that we're, we're giving them accolades to clear. This is why I think I get frustrated by the discussion that sometimes surrounds this team outside this market, right? The I think it's easy to say often when it comes to analyzing Vancouver and the annoyance of fans or the occasional expressions of that annoyance in the arena, which, by the way, fans couldn't even get it up to do that last night. Oh, dude. Just I was, pure I mean, I wasn't at the rink. I was watching on TV. It sounded dead. It Pe- sounded completely were and utterly streaming, dead. Streaming for the exits by the start of the third period, and like there weren't like it felt like the audience wanted to boo at times, but it's like they couldn't even muster that. And I got a text from a buddy who was at the game, and you know the kind of guy probably goes to maybe one, maybe two games a year, and you know I would I would wager this friend probably wants the team to rebuild, but you still want to go and see an entertaining product. You still want to go and have something to cheer for outside of Luke Shen doing his best to fire the team and the crowd up, which worked in the moment, but like outside of that, not a lot to cheer for. Just an utterly flat, deflating experience to go to the Fans rink. were so excited to have the 4-1 Bo Horvat goal. To, like, honestly, the building got loud because fans were just like, you know, you go, you're, you're looking for something to get out of your seat about. I, I mean, I enjoyed watching the Devils play. Personally, like uh, you know, I thought Jack Hughes was terrifying with the puck on his stick. Like, <laughs> there was absolutely terrifying. There was a ton of there was a ton of fun stuff the Devils did, but I also am watching it feeling like um like a snooty wine critic being like, oh yes, hints of speed and focus from the Devils. Mmm, mmm, I've missed this drinking this other swill all season. Like that's honestly how I felt, and then I was like, I can't even stand who I've become. I'm the worst. The John Marino stretch pass to set up uh, one of the goals was really nice. The, the, the 12th nice. team move from their fourth line. That was their fourth line that just completely took a can opener to the Canucks. Completely took a can opener to the Canucks. That's a gear that this team doesn't have. Period. This Canucks team doesn't have. Anyway, I want to come back to this really quickly. It gets. It's easy to look at the annoyance of fans in this market and say, well, Canadian market, when you're losing, oh boy, it's hard. Oh, it's really difficult. Like, you know, it's just the fans. They don't understand that you can't rebuild. They don't understand, you know, the business realities. They're children. They're children. They don't know. Stop it. The national media doesn't understand how unique this situation is, right? This is an all-in team that's doing this. Two, six, and two. This is an all-in team that has gone 
and dash their playoff hopes after an all-in offseason for a third consecutive year, right? This is an organization that ranks 26th in the NHL by point percentage for the last decade and also has operated at one of the largest draft pick deficits in the entire league during that stretch of repeated failure. Like the only teams that have made fewer second round picks, there's like two of them. One's Calgary, one's, uh, you know, one of the other win now teams. I, I don't have it in front of me. But, but I mean, seriously, there's only two teams that have, op- that have made fewer picks over the course of a decade in which this has been the 25th, <laughs> 20, sorry, 26th best team by point percentage. It doesn't make sense, right? The fact is, is that this f- fan base agitated for change last season, desperately, desperately agitated, in person, spent money to do it, right? That change was made, and all anybody wanted was to see the Canucks stop digging, right? Just, you want to get out of a hole? Stop digging. Stop digging. Just stop. Just stop digging. You don't need to change it overnight, despite what the organization might say about this market's expectations. We're not looking for fantasy hockey trades. (laughs) We really aren't. Just stop digging. But this team can't help itself, right? How do you commit $75 million in forward salaries since the market opened on July 13th, right? How do you add win-now pieces, a 29-year-old, a 27-year-old, and go 2-6-2? Two, and two? How do you dig this hole in the posture that this team is in? How do you send out three draft picks in, in 12 months? And then build this. And then be this. How does a management group come in talking about prioritizing cap flexibility and getting younger and how they're not buying the strong run to close last season because the goaltending patched over a lot of the issues that the club had. Dead on, by the way. Right? Dead on assessment from the front office. They knew. They knew what they had. Why did their behavior, why did their moves not match that? Why does this organization compound the on-ice failure we see with an utter dreary hopelessness in terms of overall direction. It's not normal. It's not normal. Fans are not being just outrageous hysterics in a Canadian market. When they look at this and say, what? What? Are you serious? What? That's the only reasonable reaction. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around the seeming fear of going in a different direction. Oh. Like, I, what is there? Because, you know, look, sometimes teams, things go wrong, and there's a ton of outside noise pressuring for a change, and you have to stick to your guns. You have to be stubborn. You have to say, no, we got a bad break, or we just, things went against us, but the process is right, and we're going to stick with it, and we're going to we're gonna win eventually, right? That happens in sports, where you have to be strong, you got to ignore the noise, and you got to just stick with your vision. This is not one of those times. This is not one of those times. Like, what are you seeing here that you that makes you say, "Oh well, we can't. We we got to give this a little more time. We can't give up on this group just yet." No, don't. I know everyone's impatient, but we, we're going to see this through. Like, what are the signs of life? As I said, ten games, and their best stretch of hockey is limiting what the opponent is doing. That's been their best. That's been the highest, the highest peak they've reached. And if that's your highest peak through ten games. Can you really reasonably expect more than that over the ensuing 72 games? Or at least more than that frequently enough to really make a difference and and change the trajectory of your season? I don't think that you can. And 
left. Again, so you're making the point about the fans, and there's no doubt that obviously a very demanding, very passionate market here. But you know where else has at least equally, if not even more so, a demanding and passionate fan base? It's Montreal. Like, hockey is just a different thing. The Montreal Canadiens are just a completely different thing. I, I referenced what our, our colleague who covers the Habs, Eric Engels, uh, published and wrote after their loss to the Wild. And I just want to read it because I think it is really, really instructive, okay? The headline of the piece is, Gritty Canadians simply never quit in loss to Wild. The tweet about it is, even when things weren't going their way, the Montreal Canadiens just kept on coming. They never wilted, never stopped pushing the pace, never broke in a loss to the Minnesota Wild. And Engels followed it up by saying, it's been their theme through the first 10 games. Incredibly different vibe around the Canadiens from what it was a year ago. If fans in Montreal will buy into, hey, this team doesn't have a lot of talent, they're rebuilding, they're focusing on the future, but man, they work hard and they give it their all every night. If fans in Montreal will buy that, and we have people sitting here 10 games in in Montreal saying, wow, what a turnaround, what a different vibe it is. There's, You cannot convince me that fans here wouldn't buy into it. There, We are seeing it. And, and this is not, oh, well, of course you can rebuild in Arizona. Nobody cares there. What? Whatever. Yeah, sure, rebuild. Or New this Jersey. Montreal. Yeah. Montreal, the original <laughs> diehard, passionate hockey fan base. They are all in on a rebuild because the team has certain characteristics. If they can get on board, yes, Canucks fans will get on board with a meaningful change in direction. There is no doubt in my mind. Well, and you get carved in Montreal in two languages. First of all, right? So it's <laughs> that's difficult. But uh, yeah, you're right. It can it can be done. Mike Babcock was like the chief salesman for the Toronto rebuild, right? Came in and said there will be pain. And fans bought into that too. I think there's sellouts. I think there were a game or two they didn't sell out. I'm not saying the pain wasn't felt on the business side during that one season in which they struggled enormously to to get Austin Matthews, but like I lived, I lived in Toronto during the Muskoka 5 era, and like I remember how desperate and pointless those teams were, and I remember laughing as the Leafs fans that I went to school with would like talk themselves into Jason Blake. You know, like I remember just laughing and enjoying my like Sedin hockey, and it was great. Oh, dude. I, it was so good. So I, was, I went to school in Montreal from 2004 to 2008, right? right? So the lockout was the first year. After that, every year, the Canucks would go out to the East Coast. They would shred, shred. the Leafs. Shred the Leafs including, on Hockey Night in Canada. Including the comeback win that caused the Leafs to trade half their team for Dion Phaneuf. They I was, would I was absolutely at that game. annihilate them. And then they would frequently win in Montreal. I got to see a Roberto Luongo shout out, shout out in the Bell Center. It was fantastic. Like, it was great. It was a great time to be a Canucks fan if you were back East in those years. But now the Canucks are like the, the are, are like the, maybe even like the JFJ or, or Brian Burke Leafs, right? Just like constantly going for it and constantly, not just failing, but coming up like way short, right? It's pathetic. Honestly, it's just pathetic at this point. It's pathetic and there's no change too dramatic. This organization needs to get on the same page as the market. Because we're watching this. Fans are watching this. We all see what's going on. Like, we, you cannot convince Canucks fans at this point that this team is worth doubling down on. And again, you, you can't. You, you can't even. It's over. You can't even play the, you know, okay, there's a lot of noise on the outside, but we're all pulling together. We're all on the same page. We all believe. Like, they sound defeated. It's so joyless. They sound defeated every it game. so joyless right now and Austin and Langley texted it in this team is so bad that they broke Jolly Jamie 
you you've worked with, you've worked with me for a little while now. Like I'm generally a pretty chipper guy. I would say I'm normally in a pretty good mood. Yes. But like, how am I supposed to watch that? It's the worst. And yeah, no. <laughs> how am I supposed to watch what we're seeing over and over and over again? Listen to what we're hearing from the coach and the players, and not be frustrated. You you don't think they are equally as frustrated? You can hear it every. Bruce Boudreaux sounds like he's at his wit's end. The players, as you said, they sound defeated. They sound like they're waiting for the other shoe to drop already. Again, 10 games into the season. I mean, I think in segment three, because we're going to do Cam in segment two, I think we should listen to Bruce Boudreaux's commentary from last night because he had a really telling response, I think, when I asked, like, look, Bo Horvat scores two, gets robbed twice, hits a post in the third. What's he doing? What's he doing right? Like, what's what's going right for Bo Horvat in your view? And Bruce Boudreaux's response was, well, he's working hard. Yeah. Whew. I, I, I was honestly, like, taken aback. You know, that was the, we got outworked, was Bruce Boudreaux's three-word summary of that game. And then what's this one guy who's, uh, what's your one standout performer? What's he doing well? He's working hard. Oh. That's a that's tough. And that's Aust- a tough Austin spot. and Langley texting again. I hate the there will be pain on the business side argument against rebuilds. Like this broken Canucks team is thriving business wise. They must be getting shredded. They're forcing themselves into the inevitable. And without even getting to the business argument, again, what's the big fear? What's the big like the downside of going in a different direction and trying to rebuild? And once again, and I've made this point a bunch, and I'm going to be clear on it. I'm not saying tank. I'm not saying be bad for five years. That's not at all what I'm advocating. What I'm saying is a much more kind of measured, focused rebuild, which if done correctly and if done with focus and with discipline, I do not think it has to take five years. But you want to talk about the downsides like, well, you might have some really ugly games at home where you get blown out by a good team in the third period. Well, I wouldn't want that to happen all of a sudden. <laughs> oh no, we can't have that. Like, well, that's happening already. So what's the concern? I- I'm gonna I'm gonna take it even a step back like I'm willing to be even more conservative than you at the moment right forget not advocating for a rebuild or a tank here's here's all I'm asking for here's all I'm asking for on behalf of our, of Canucks fans who who happen to uh, have agreed with me sometimes just right now whenever just stop digging just stop digging that's it like just stop digging you know you can do it in the Dory voice from Finding Nemo if you want just stop digging right Draft picks don't get traded for guys that don't move the needle, right? Cap space does not get committed to anyone over 25, right? Guys over 27 do not get extended. No signings whatsoever the day the market opens on July 1. Zero. None. None. Until you're ready to compete. Not just to make the playoffs, not just for a hope of making the playoffs, but for a cup. That's it. Those are my rules, right? No draft pick outflow. Build a draft, build a draft uh, surplus of draft picks, right? Do not sign anyone on the day the market opens in free agency and stop trading draft picks for, for depth players. Stop it. That's it. That's all I want. Do those three things, and maybe we'll have sunny days again in this city that aren't just outside, but are in fact in the rink. That's it. That's, is that unreasonable? Is that, is that such a ridiculous thing to ask for that, like, Oh no, that's a childish thing. That would never work business-wise. That's all that just stop digging. Just stop digging. And if you bring in a new management team, luxuriously staffed with, you know, a diverse group of people with impressive backgrounds and they keep digging, well, <laughs> I don't know. 
know. I, I don't even know how to process that. It's so ridiculous. It's 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 honestly broken my brain at this point. You know, to the point where I you know I go to the rink to watch the other teams. <laughs> I go to the rink looking forward to watching the other teams. All of this said, the Canucks will win Thursday in Anaheim, and shame on us if we take the positives from that. Right? Like shame on us if we don't believe what the team has shown us to this point because it's undeniable now. Uh, we got to take a break. The last thing I want to say, though, and this is just such classic. We'll talk more about Bo Horvat later in the show. But it's just such classic Canucks, though, that per points percentage in the official NHL standings, the Canucks are last in the league right now. Dead last in the league. And yet, their big pending UFA is also somehow massively driving his price up and on this incredible heater. It's like, both of those things shouldn't be able to be true at once, and yet... The Canucks have found a way to make it true. Cam Sharon, our weekly regular here, is going to join us next. We will get his thoughts on last night's game against the Devils, the state of the Canucks overall as well. We'll continue to take your text to 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It's Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. And of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Tons of great uh, thoughts coming in on the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll get to them throughout the course of the show. As Drancer said, we'll play back some of Bruce Boudreaux's uh, commentary later in the show as well. But right now, he joins us every week here on the program. He's a contributor at The Athletic, former member of the Toronto Maple Leafs front office, and you can read his work at camsharon.com, where he does great uh, post-game recaps and analysis for every Canucks game. Uh, he is Cam Sharon. Cam, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? Oh, I'm actually doing pretty well today. Uh, I didn't mind the Canucks' performance as much as others might have last night, and it's sunny I'm not in a bad space. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it because there's been moments that we've talked to you this season already where it sounds like that hasn't been the case <laughs> because you've been covering the Canucks. So I'm glad to hear it is the case right now. And, you know, as you said, you didn't mind their performance as much as a lot of people in the market did uh, last night against New Jersey. And I hear where you're coming from. And I, you know, I, I read your, uh, your recap and your stats today. I totally understand it. The thing that stands out for me, though, is even when the Canucks have what we might call like a, a good performance or, you know, hey, they actually did pretty well in that game, even though they lost, it feels like it's much more about kind of mucking the game up and preventing the other team from, from really dominating than it is the Canucks actually, you know, stepping on the gas and controlling the game themselves. Yeah. And that's, that's a really big issue that the team has, and we've talked about before that they just don't have that gear to to transition properly between defense to offense to and turning that offense into scoring chances. But I felt like last night the Devils were kind of letting the Canucks uh, take the game to them, and that did give the Canucks a little bit of chances to kind of open it up. And they didn't, you know, they didn't really take it, and that was kind of the that was kind of the issue with it was. You're getting all these possessions. You're forcing all these turnovers in the defensive zone, and you're not really doing anything with it. Like, there are a few – there were not a few. There were five or six moments, I guess that's a few, where Niels Hoaglander just kind of picked up a puck along the boards after a bad touch by a Devils defender and just kind of gave the, the puck away right away. Like, 
T was doing that and Pod Colson was doing that. And the team just didn't have that ability to kind of, after winning those pucks, just turn it into offense. And, you know, I, I think that will come like that's like generally getting the possessions is the more difficult thing in this game in this league. So, you know, we'll see if that becomes a repeatable thing going forward. Uh, I did like their ability to kind of uh, take what New Jersey was giving them. Uh, they played with control. They played with possession. They just didn't really do anything with it. And so that kind of slows the whole thing down. Uh, but I didn't mind it uh, on the whole. I was a little more upset with the Devils because I was excited to see them and see uh, th- their top two lines work. And they didn't really get anything going. You're right. The Canucks kind of mucked it down when they were on. Yeah, the thing, Cam, is is that was probably the Devils' worst performance of the season, and they win going away. Like, it wasn't close or or in doubt at any point. I mean, at what yeah, point does that become an indictment of what this team can do? Well, I think it's more of a credit to what the Devils are. And as I mentioned in my post, like, the last time the Devils were coming through town, they were 22-37. and 37. They were so far, like, they, <laughs> right. they were a lottery team in March. We knew what they were, and... You know, just a few months later, they they come in as this powerhouse that, you know, they, they identified this game on the schedule. They could kind of coast through and, you know, credit to them and and the way that they've just been able to reshape that team and, and tur- you know, go from being like this pure rush team that gave up a lot the other way to being this really complete team that, you know, they that really kind of grinded Vancouver to dust at some at some portions during the third period last night. They were able to just establish a cycle and keep it going. And yeah, you know, the Canucks aren't there, and they probably should have been there. The Devils' rebuild took a long time, but you know, they're at a spot where they're one of the best teams in hockey. And I think that we can say that there's that some level of this is sustainable. And uh, the Canucks haven't had a performance like the Devils have had it all this season. Yeah, it's stark their transition from using their speed to play run-and-gun hockey to using their speed to just suffocate uh, opponents. And, you know, what? the Canucks just didn't generate much of anything 5-on-5. And once again, nothing from the back end at at even strength. What, What did your numbers say about Vancouver's ability to generate offense? And are you at the point where you think this club's scoring might be a bigger issue than their ability to prevent goals. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of there, and it's not mm. just the, it's not just the back end; it's also the bottom six. Like we we saw one, we saw two shot scoring chance contributions from the bottom six and the entire defensive group last night. And you know the the Devils had you know like in the teens, it's. It was a bit. It was a major difference between the between the teams last night. Like we saw, Michael McLeod and Nathan Bastian kind of they, they did some good things offensively, and the Canucks fourth line just wasn't able to get anything established. Like, you know, it's it's just the same thing. They're winning pucks. They're not able to do anything with it. And part of that is, you know, the the, the Canucks D aren't able to feed them the puck. They're not moving off the line, and they're not, you know. It's it's really one dimensional, and you're just kind of expecting Elias Pettersson to have a a fantastic game every night. You're expecting J.T. Miller to have a fantastic game every night, and you know you talk you talk about a team relying on Demko, but you're relying on your top forwards as much as anything uh, at this point. And you know the the other team I've been watching a lot, the Leafs, are kind of in the same issue where if the top gun if the top guns aren't going, they really have nothing, and it, it looks really bad when you play like that. 
Cam, one of the things I found really interesting from your write-up of last night's game was you mentioned, you know, the Canucks were moving the puck pretty well just in terms of, you know, controlling it, you know, exiting the zone with control, avoiding turnovers, but they weren't moving it quickly. And that was actually limiting a lot of what their chances uh, of what they were able to generate. I was wondering if you could kind of expand on the difference between those two things and maybe why, in your view, the Canucks have been able to do one, but not so much the other so far this season. Yeah, so because the Canucks have had some pretty good performances when it comes to zone exits, so but they haven't really turned that into offense. So I, I kind of looked at the numbers to to figure out exactly what happened, and you know the benefit of of taking such detailed uh, tracking numbers is that I can I can confirm a few theories. So one thing I looked at was how fast does the team break the puck out following a shot by the opposition. So that sounds incredibly esoteric, <laughs> um, but it's 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 one of those things that you can really determine that you know a, a weakness in a in a team's game. So when when the other team takes a shot, the Canucks break the puck out uh, with control roughly seven seconds after that happens, and their opponents have been doing so about five seconds after that shot. So there's a so there's a two second gap where the Canucks are kind of allowing the, the other team to get back into position and properly defend that breakout and rush. So, you know, like exiting with, exiting with control is one thing, but if you're not also exiting with speed, it really limits what you're able to accomplish offensively. And I need to find a way to incorporate that into my tracking because I think it's, you know, it's clearly not enough to just play with control and play methodically and play slow. Mm. You also need to take advantage of the little bit of open space because there's not a lot of it in the NHL. You need to create it on your own. One thing I found interesting, well, two things I found interesting about how the Devils played, particularly because, you know, their forecheck didn't exactly skate Vancouver's defense off the ice, right? They definitely, well, they definitely played well off the rush. But really, the two things that I felt gave them a pretty persistent edge and that consistently had me, you know, intrigued, right? To the point of, of maybe not to the point of ooing and eyeing, but certainly uh, perking up in my seat a little bit, were the way that they used in-zone passing to exit the zone with their forwards involved, often, often in the mid-slot, um, before sort of pushing it back out, and the way they were disciplined about just throwing pucks down ice into space, often with like spin passes, spin saucer passes, and just using their speed to beat Vancouver's defenders out uh, and down the ice, even if they didn't get chances from it necessarily. They, they at least cleared the zone and, and created a, a pretty significant sense of pressure off of that. Uh, I thought the second goal was, it was a product of some of that team-level puck movement uh, for New Jersey. What? How, how does that tie in? to some of what you're talking about in terms of exiting the zone with speed and the importance thereof? Yeah, so one thing I noticed when I was tallying up everything was how just how many more in-zone touches the Devils forwards had. They had 90 touches compared to the Canucks 71 uh, just for forwards in the defensive zone. So a lot of passes, a lot of back passes, and there was this one sequence actually uh, that I remember during the third period where – uh, Hughes was going to break out. It was at the end of a shift, and Hughes was going to break out of the zone with control. He hit the blue line, kind of thought better of it, understanding the situation of the game, retreated back into his own end, and and let his team, you know, kick the puck back to a defender and let his team change. And 
so you know I know you're talking about discipline in terms of like creating offense, but this is like a, a way you know a way of just being disciplined and knowing the situation and knowing okay we can't we can't exit with speed right now, but we don't really have to. We're at the end of a shift. We don't want to be caught in a situation where we're going to be two or three guys below the puck. So you know just being able to just being able to read the game and do things like that know know what the situation's like and that, you know that's one of the reasons why we talk about score effects sometimes is it, the devils kind of kind of knew when they could let the canucks play to them and they also have the ability to go get the game if they need to but they just didn't really have to last night so i i i do like their ability the, the ability of that team's forwards to just kind of understand when they can break out with speed when they don't have to and yeah like they they had those opportunities to send those long uh stretch passes and really stretch out the ice we only saw that a couple times with the canucks and you know one thing i was happy about with the canucks finally is was we saw Ilya mikhaev actually skate a little bit to those open pucks we saw it twice in conversation with cam Sharon here on canucks talk sportsnet 650 and you know, Cam, I wanted to ask you a little bit more of, uh, you know, springboarding off of last night's game, but just kind of more of a general question about the role of speed and, and a speed mismatch. Because, look, the Canucks are not a fast team. We know New Jersey is a very fast team. And the thing is, as much as the game is trending towards speed and we all know speed gives you an advantage, you know, it's not like a rule of the universe that the faster team always wins, right? The slower team can actually win hockey games, but it just seems like the Canucks are constantly getting sliced up. And even when they do a generally okay job of kind of mucking things up a little bit, there's still these key moments where the other team's speed breaks through. When you are an NHL team at a speed disadvantage, what are the things you need to do to kind of compensate for that? And how do you need to play to try to to limit the other team's advantage like that? Well, you're absolutely right in that, you know, you know, it's a it's a it's a cliche in baseball. Speed never slumps, and it's ve- it's very true in hockey as well. And I think one of the bi- one of the reasons why the Devils won this game wasn't because of the way they were able to possess the puck, but because they kind of had four big plays essentially, where the Canucks were really in no position to to handle any of them. I you know I think the the thing is when you're playing against a fast team and you're not a really fast team. You know, I, I've never, you know, I've never really been in a position where I've had too much success figuring out exactly what to do. You know, the teams in Toronto we had were usually pretty quick. So the the way I think that the way I think we were beaten was usually just better puck management or, uh, you know, the just the ability to collapse and uh, and park the bus on defense uh, when when we were tra- when we were trailing and. You know, I think that I I don't think the Canucks really have that ability to park the bus. Uh, you know, we've seen it in the the first couple of weeks of the season when they they gave up all those leads. Like, yeah, it's you know, it, it is difficult. I, I I don't know the answer to that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm tracking a lot of this stuff is I want to learn the answer to que- you know learn the answer to questions like that. What is the best way to beat a team like the Devils who? You know, their last three games, they've carved three different teams up in three completely different ways. And and neither the, the Avalanche, Blue Jackets, or Canucks really had an answer for them. So the, the answer is I don't really know, but it's very clear that the Devils having the, just that big playability is going to win them some games in this league, and their opponents are just going to have to be really careful about managing the puck and making sure that they've always got four or five guys below. It's going to be really, really boring to beat the Devils some of these nights. You're going to have to play a 
you're going to have to play a really stifling style. You're going to have to play like the Devils did at the turn of the century, which is kind of bleak. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so fascinating to me that the Devils have just become this team because you know through the entirety of my life they were either boring or bad. I, I thought now I, they are fun and good. I thought about that a lot last night. I was like, I'm not used to watching yeah. thrilling hockey played in these sweaters. It's uh, it was throwing yeah. me off with um <laughs> with regards to you know the question that you were just talking about Quinn Hughes had an interesting thing and I asked Bruce Boudreaux this too did your mistakes feed the devil's speed or did you struggle to handle it and they both gave different answers Bruce basically said you know their speed caused us to make the mistakes and Quinn Hughes said you know look at it you know I missed the box out on the second goal uh first goal we have two guys beaten consecutively on seams and then two giveaways to create two-on-ones we did that to ourselves uh what is it does pressure cause mistakes or did the canucks mistakes feed the devil's speed advantage it's probably both because <laughs> uh, you know both both hughes and and boudreaux are they're watching the game from you know different perspectives hughes is out there on the ice and uh bruce is is right next to it so it's you know i i don't know these answers and these are going to be fun things to look at and one of the reasons why i'm really intent on on just following this devil's team and not just seeing how they win but also how they get beaten because they're not going to you know they're not going to win 60 games they're going to lose 30 or so so just you know seeing exactly what those teams are able to do when they're able, when when they you know when they do have success against the devils from my own observation i think it was more I lean more towards what what Hughes was saying, and that when the Canucks kind of allowed them, you know, drop their guard, that was when the Devils were kind of had that quick strike ability. They had those two two on ones. They had that breakaway shorthanded, just kind of off these little mental lapses. That you know, I'm just thinking of the one that it didn't result in a goal, but Puck Colson at the point on the power play mm. just kind of lost control of the puck, and Sharon Govich came in and like. I, Puck Colton wasn't pressured at all. He just kind of, he was just kind of being very lackadaisical and, and casual. And and when he gave up that, and as soon as the, and as soon as he gave up a little, as soon as he gave up an inch, Sharon Govich took a mile and just broke right in. So, you know, it's a little of both. I'd probably lean more towards speed hurts you when you make mistakes, and less so causes you to make mistakes at least in the way the game played last night. You had some commentary on our program last week that I think the market wasn't ready for, right? Uh, about <laughs> Oliver ekman Larson in particular. And I think events over the course of the past week, even though the Canucks have won twice, have sort of served to, you know, even if people think you were maybe a touch dramatic, move public opinion toward your direction as it regards Oliver ekman Larson's form. You also wrote today that the Canucks, if they play their six best defensemen, have probably a second pair, calib- like a second pair, and up to four third pairs yeah. in their lineup. Is Oliver ekman Larson in that top six for you, and what are you seeing from him that's, you know, I know you don't have the context of last year, but last year, I promise you, he was a classy, effective, shutdown second pair guy. And all of a sudden, like, what are you seeing here? And is he in Vancouver's top six? Should he be an everyday player right now for this team, in your view? What I'm seeing with the ekman Larson and Myers pairing is Myers is really the one that's clearly handling the load. I think Myers is really starting to handle a lot of the touches. 
Ekman Larson's just kind of hanging around near the net. Myers is the one that's kind of chasing players to the boards and forcing those forcing offensive zone turnovers, shutting down the cycle. He's also doing a much better job of just kind of getting back to the front of the net and and shutting down scoring chances before they happen. I, it just in the sense of what Myers is kind of doing there. You know, there, there's there was there's been some plays too where a player will cut in over Myers' side of the ice. And so the, you know, I record a controlled entry as going against Tyler Myers, but then he immediately cuts towards Ekman Larson's side because Ekman Larson is hanging around in the high slot for some reason. Um, it's, you know, the, like the, the single game data isn't really enough for me, you know, for it to be a really, uh, you know, to, for me to really destroy Ekman Larson's entire reputation here. But just visually, it's it's very clear, like, that Tyler Myers is the one controlling this pairing right now. And it, I, it was just this thought I had when the team acquired Ethan Bear. And I thought, okay, well, Ethan Bear is going to have to go in the lineup because he's obviously one of the best six defensemen on the Canucks. But who comes out? And you start going through the names. And, you know, I, I like Kyle Burroughs and Luke Shen on a pairing together. I think that they're fairly effective. They'd be a good third pairing on a lot of teams. Obviously, Quinn Hughes is in there, and if he can't play with Shen, he's with Tyler Myers. You know, Bear is there. Is Bear the one, you know, is he playing with Ekman Larson? Like, are we really reducing Ekman Larson's role to just being that kind of sheltered third-pair guy? And I think that's it's kind of we're going to have to go in that direction or he's the odd man out because, you know, I haven't really seen a lot of Riley Stillman that really bothers me from that perspective. Like, he's not being beaten by speed. He's not losing battles in the corners all the time. Ekman Larson's just having such a tough time containing uh, top-line players. It's becoming very distracting for me when, I, when I'm when i watching these games. And he has all these little habits that would infuriate me if I, was wor- if I were working for the Canucks. Just really weak passes and being really passive at the blue line, he gives up on puck retrieval races so easily. He just, he's not playing like, he's not playing like someone that deserves to be in an NHL top pairing right now. You know, probably a little uh, extreme to say that he'd be on waivers, but I think without that name on his back, if his name were Kyle Burroughs, he would be the one coming out of the lineup the way that things have, have, sh- have shaken out this year. Well, and, you know, as you mentioned, look, we all know that the, the Canucks blue line needs a talent upgrade, but the, as you said, there's no shortage of depth options, and, and, and yeah. we haven't even talked about uh, potentially Travis Dermott coming back at some point, right? And that adds another name to the mix. That So there is going to yeah. be some pressure uh, at, at some point this season where they might have to make a tough decision on OEL. Yeah, or, or you know, to make an easy decision with, uh, with someone lower down the lineup. But, yeah, it's you know, you never want to be the one to to scratch a, a player with four years left on his deal. But yeah, like there's so many quality third pairing guys right now, and they're not getting enough out of their top pairing. You know, we're getting to the point where we're going to have to try one of those guys in 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 bigger minutes and see if you can get some sort of puck movement. Uh, you know, with your top guys on the ice, because that's the other thing. When your top pairing is also going to have to play a lot with your top six forwards and they're going to have to move the puck quite a bit and you know we're not seeing that out of OEL we're seeing that quite a bit of a, out of Tyler Myers actually I've actually quite liked what Myers has done this year 
Um, he's apparently he's not as chaotic as he used to be, but I think he's been pretty effective. So, you know, I maybe just kind of mix it up a little bit and, and throw in a different element, like someone like Jack Rathbone or 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 Travis Dermont just on Myers aside against the top against the tops. Like what like what do you really have to lose here is is kind of thing. You need to find a way to to play with speed against other teams and. And, and give them a bit of a different look because what they what they're doing just isn't working. It's just a little. It's it's not a little too slow. It's way too slow. It's way too methodical. And they need to seem to find something to to really break up that monotony and and get something going in the offensive zone. Cam, always really appreciate your insight. I encourage everyone to go check out your work at camshron.com. Subscribe for the uh, post game recaps where you get a lot of really interesting data uh, and insight. Thanks for doing this. We'll chat again next week. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. Good to be on. That is Cam Sharon again, joins us every week here, and you can go check out his work, camsharon.com, and subscribe. Uh, always really, really enjoy that camp conversation with Cam. I thought he had some very interesting thoughts about Oliver ekman Larson towards the end of the interview as well, which we will pick up uh, as the show continues here from Bruce Boudreaux, and we'll, we'll pour over some of his commentary from last night's game. Plus, take more of your text. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumbar text line. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Uh, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech footwear and orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You know... Uh, we we both got pretty uh, pretty fired up uh, in the first segment, Dranzer, which I think is very fair. When you know we, we were watching what this uh, what this team is doing, um, we had uh, Cam Sharon on to kind of level us out a little bit. But we also ended the interview by talking a little bit about Oliver Ekman Larson, and uh, that got the uh, <laughs> that got the six fifty Dunbar Lumber text message inbox fired up because yeah, Oliver Ekman Larson has become. A major, major uh, lightning rod for around this team right now, and I understand why his play is uh, it's 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 tough to watch uh, where his game is at right now. The fact is, is that Myers and Oliver Ekman Larson were such a key part of what drove Vancouver's stunning success in fifty-seven games under Bruce Boudreau last year, and they they set a high bar for themselves. They haven't been close to it. This year. Now, Myers, there's some mitigating circumstances with some injuries. I actually thought he played pretty well last night, to be totally honest with you. Um, certainly, he brings an element that this team so desperately misses when he's out. Just in terms of, you know, the, the ability to skate with the puck, some of the chaos, his ability to surf and squeeze uh, at the at the defensive blue line. Um, you know, this team just needs that pair to probably be at a level that's unfair to ask of them. Right, like they they need to be playing at the level of a really good NHL first pair. That's what they did for fifty seven games last year. It changed what this club was able to accomplish. But you know that level of performance, particularly defensive performance, wasn't something they've historically managed. Certainly not with any consistency in their careers. So to expect them to maintain that level uh, was probably a bridge too far. Honestly, like now 
all of that said, I, I do think there's got to be something up with Oliver Ekman Larson at the moment. Like he is struggling to handle passes, right? He's so passive offensively. I mean, th- this doesn't look like the same guy we saw last no. year. And there's like a, a real apprehension for just making plays. Like yeah. just really reluctant to sure. have the puck on his stick to try to make a play. Like when he gets it, it's it's off the boards pretty much instantly. It's there's there's a real hesitation. Or he's there. bobbling pucks that he's handling and those extra second or two, like that extra half second that matters a ton. That means everything. You know, in hockey, in hockey that means everything. So, you know, it's it's hard to understand that. If you if it, if it was a foot speed issue or if he was losing battles, that would be one thing, right? We'd say, "Hey, maybe there's a physical issue. He's getting no, he's getting long in the tooth." But it really goes beyond that in terms of his ability to handle the pace of the game right now. Um, it's inexplicable considering how effective he was in his first season with the Vancouver Canucks. This club's going to need to get an awful lot more out of him, particularly uh, given what that deal looks like and how long they're kind of, you know, not stuck with it, but how long it has to remaining, right? Like it's going to be tolling on these books for the duration of Quinn Hughes's contract, right? Uh, Pedersen's going to be, what, 27 when the deal expires? Quinn, 26? You know, they, they, they can't have... Ekman Larson playing at the level of a third pair guy, if that, in year two of that of of sort of their acquisition of him, like that's going to crush this team. Yeah, it's should a, it persist? It's a major problem, and I know we we get the text in talking about okay, they got to buy him out this summer. I still lean towards you got to hold on for another year because if you buy him out this summer, you're looking at eventually four years beyond the four years he yeah, has left. Eight years. Right? It's eight years of having it's some It's another form. Luongo um, and retention I, and recapture. I, I, I just don't think you can get into another situation where you have that long-term, really long-term dead cap on your books. Like you have to, maybe a buyout happens at some point, but I'm giving it every opportunity to get down to, you know, two years left on the deal before yeah. you pull the trigger, something like that. Also, don't forget that the moment you buy out a deal that, cap space is dead there's nothing you can do with it right like it's not a problem you can solve it's just a reality that you have to grapple with and that level of um certainty right negative certainty is something that should be avoided at all costs it's, it should always be a last resort to buy a guy out unless they're you know a one-thirds buyout guy under the age of 25 typically uh you're just better off finding something uh, a double retention deal, a retention deal, uh, taking back a bad contract, whatever else is still a better solution, particularly because it doesn't extend for eight years. Uh, anyway, it's premature to to be on that. I, yeah. I, I wonder if there's something else up with Ekman Larson. I, I find it in, inexplicable that his game, you know, again, if it was a foot speed thing, right? If it was a winning battles thing, if it was a physical prowess has fallen well off a cliff and you start to worry that a guy's wheels are just falling off in, in his early 30s, which, by the way, that comes for two-way NHL players. This is a increasingly young man's league. It is a faster game than it's ever been before, right? Pe- players are peaking earlier and earlier. Younger players are getting paid more and more. Veteran guys are getting squeezed. The result is... You know, a, a very different league than the one we grew up watching in terms of what's prioritized, what works, when guys lose their effectiveness. Like, we are seeing guys fall off much earlier than they used to, right? You, you used to have a lot of 35-year-old guys in the league. Now you have very few. Very few. Well, we grew up hearing and thinking a lot of us, right? Like, when, when's a player's prime? You know, like 28 to 32. Yeah, no chance. 
that, those days are long gone. 22 to 26, right? I mean, people get mad at me for saying this, Spectre. Um, <laughs> but but truly, that's when that's when guys are at the peak of their powers, statistically speaking. I'm not saying that guys can't figure out how to win better at the age of 29 than they knew how to win at the age of 25, 20, 26. There are examples of players who graft additional know-how onto their game and hit a new level later on in their careers. We've seen it with Joe Pavelski. I'm wondering if we're seeing it with Bo Horvat and his finishing game at the moment. Uh, certainly, we saw it in this market with Henrik and Daniel Sedin. But those are extraordinary cases, right? For the most part, in this league, in this NHL world we live in now, the young, like, the young guys rule. It just is what it is. And the other thing is, even if you are developing some of that kind of veteran savvy, you have to develop so much of it to outpace... The, the physical, the yeah. physical downside, right? Like it, so you can be doing, growing as a player and learning more as a player, but you can still be declining in effectiveness because your physical skills are letting you down just naturally with the passage of time, right? So that's, I think that's why it's so hard to actually kind of twist things. It's not just that you have to learn a little bit; you have to make so many of those kind of intangible uh, adjustments and improvements to keep on the right side of the curve. Yeah, and and this team can't afford to have you know, this level of performance from $13.26 million worth of defensemen, right? Like, they need these guys to be the reason they win, not a key reason they're losing, right? It, it, it just kind of is what it is. I, I asked Boudreaux about it yesterday, and he was really reluctant. Like, he really generalized the question, but he didn't reject the premise of it outright. Mm. And and I thought that spoke volumes, too. Um, should we roll it? Yeah, well, just a second. I just This question comes in, can they waive... OEL, what's no. the cap relief? No, they can't. Well, first of all, it would only be it would be very minimal. But also, relief. he has Second got a no movement. He has a no move clause, a full no move, so he can say well, no and to being put on waivers. And a no movement clause is bulletproof. It it means you can say no to being put on waivers. This is what a no trade clause actually is, right? Like people think that a no trade clause is, you know, ironclad. It's not because you can put a guy on waivers and then they have no say in where they go, right? And so you can go to a guy and say, hey. You know, it, they have to be good still, right? They have to be worth that putting a claim Teams have in. to desire them for some reason, yes. But but you can go to them and say, hey, we're going to trade you to this team. Do you want to go there? No. Okay, then we're going to put you on waivers. Do you like Columbus? <laughs> no? Okay, well, then you're going to get traded to them. Like, that's, that's kind of what you can do if a guy just has an NTC. The other thing you can do, which the Canucks declined deeply unwisely, in my opinion, to do um, with Louis Erickson. Is you can demote a guy. Yeah. You send him to the AHL and you make life miserable and you and you challenge him to now. That was a much better card for the Canucks to play when their uh, affiliate was in Utica. Right? Now now it's like you don't even move, you just have a commute, you're a commuter now into the valley. But uh but nonetheless, that was a that was a that was a card that you're Canucks... going counter flow, so you're not even stuck in traffic that much. Totally. <laughs> that was that was a card the Canucks legitimately should have played, especially during that pandemic season with, with Ericsson. But it's not a card you can play, um, you know, with any player as an NMC. Uh, let's hear a little bit from Bruce Boudreau. I'm not sure we'll play back the whole thing, but I do. If you didn't get a chance to hear it on the post game show, you know, I, I'm not sure just snippets really does it justice because I, I just want to get everyone a sense of kind of the mood and the vibe around such a departure Bruce from Boudreau. What we saw from him last season. Yeah, so we'll play a little bit of it here. We might dump out at some point, but here is Bruce Boudreau after the game last night. Well, they all worked us. <laughs> When they outwork you, you know the the success is going to follow. I mean, I, I really believe that, uh, that initially as the special teams, I thought we were going pretty good in the first period, and uh, uh, you give up 
you know, power play goal in seven seconds, give up a shorthanded goal, that's pretty well the ball game. How frustrating is it from a coaching perspective to have the game go this way after how well you played against Pittsburgh? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, it is frustrating. I mean, that's you know, uh, I, don't, I really don't, don't have an answer. It's frustrating. It's, uh, uh, I thought. You know, we in- implemented a few new guys into the lineup, and I thought that would bring energy, but it uh, we didn't seem to win uh, anywhere near as many battles as you would have liked to. Talk about giving the power play goal up quickly. How difficult has it been winning face-offs on the PK, and how much has that cost you? Well, I mean, you look at any good PK, what are they, 93% or whatever, and Hischer's number two in the league. I mean, you win face-offs, you get that first one down the ice, and but it, it, winning faceoffs is is not just a one man crew. It's a it's three four men working at it. And uh, um, but we seem to we have a tendency to lose a lot of the first first faceoffs. Whether it's penalty killing or whether it's power play or, or whatever. It's uh, uh, if Bo's not winning them, then uh, we don't have a lot of guys winning faceoffs. Did your club? issues handling their speed tonight or did your club's mistakes feed their speed game? Well, I think you could probably uh, say both, you know. I mean, uh, uh, speed kills and, and they made us make mistakes by with their speed and tenacity and uh, uh, that, you know, that was pretty evident, I think. Uh, you know, and uh, and then, like I keep saying, the, the one-on-one confrontations in the corners and that, the, they're the ones coming out with the puck. Our second quick wasn't as quick as their second guy. So then they end up outnumbering your guys. So it's uh, it, just, it just goes. That's the way it goes. Are you concerned at all about the amount of east-west puck movement that your club's giving up tomorrow? Concerned. We talk about it. We show it. We, we know the analytics on it. Um, and... Uh, uh, but it's, it, somehow it still happens. Are you? Or sorry, what were your thoughts on the way the penalties were assessed after the uh, engagement between Luke Shen? Well, I understood when a guy's down and he's throwing punches. Still, that could be a game. Um, Joshua jumps in uh, and he gets uh, the third man in. I mean, or he got a game, uh, which is a little strange. Instead of being a third man in, but uh, did you think he was the third man in? Though? I haven't really looked at it. You know, I mean, there's a lot going on there. So, I mean, I'll look at it tonight. You also had the really aggressive goalie pull with over three minutes to go. Is it just a matter of, it doesn't matter if it's a 5-2 loss? No, that's not it. I wasn't planning on pulling him. You know, I didn't think uh, uh, we earned the right that we were going to get three. And uh, But when they got a penalty, I said, okay, now's our chance. And we did get one. And then we're, okay, now we're in the game. Like, I mean, you get a little life. You get the crowd behind you. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I thought we had chances even then. But, I mean, they're, they're getting in ways of, of pucks. They're blocking. Uh, they're doing whatever they can to stop it. And uh, that's uh, the mark of a team that's, you know, on a, on a good roll right now. Bruce, uh, early impressions of the two newcomers that you injected tonight? Um, you talking Studnika and... Uh, Bear, I thought was uh, was fine. I think I, I, it's it's a little difficult for everybody. Like when you have one practice and you're trying to uh, find teammates and um, to do what you can do. Like I mean, uh, Studs looked a little nervous out there today.
But, I mean, um, you can tell that he's got some, some good attributes and hopefully we can grow into, you know, grow into them. We need a right-handed center, and uh, uh, he could fit that bill. The, the job is there if, uh, if he wants it. I know you, you don't want to give up these two-on-ones, but do you need to be better at defending them? There seems to have been a lot of passes come across on those plays this year. Well, you'd like to think. You'd like, you want to be better at them. You know, I mean, we go over them, we show them what they shouldn't be doing, what good teams do when they do, uh, how they stop them. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, of course, we're not just sitting there and saying, oh, well, we're not that good at it and let's quit at it. We're working at it all the time and showing video on it all the time. Bruce, you got really incredible results out of the pair of Ekman, Larson, and Myers in the 57 games you coached last season. Are you getting enough from that pair at the moment? Well, I mean, it's a tough question. I mean, obviously we're two six and two, so we're not getting enough out of any, anybody right now, and uh, that's that's the case. I mean, uh, we need our veteran guys and our better players to be our better players on a consistently day and every day, not just one good game here and one good game there. And and that just not goes for only for them, but it goes for the forwards as well and the goaltending as well. What are you seeing? Sorry, what are you seeing from Bo Horvat? By the way, he has two, but he also got robbed twice in the second. Hits the post in the third. Um, what are you seeing in terms of why he's getting so many chances? What he's doing right? Well, he, he's working hard. When you work hard, you get opportunities. I mean, uh, uh, he's uh, he's one of the few guys that are you know scoring. And but I mean, he's going to the net and he's playing on the inside. Even the one he hit the post, he gets by the guy and drives to the net and when you play on the inside of the defense in front of their net the rebounds are going to come to you they're not going to go anywhere else and in the first period we had a lot of opportunities but we weren't playing to the inside so they were getting the puck and clearing it and on their two goals they're scoring from inside the crease. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux. A sampling of what he had to say after the Canucks loss to New Jersey last night and I mean you know, I think we ended up playing a little bit more than I intended to going into it, but really every answer, every answer he gives in that presser, and it continued beyond that transfer, there's, there's a certain amount of kind of open frustration, and I don't want to say resignation because, you know, you hear him talk about, oh, we're, we're working hard on it, and I look, Bruce Boudreaux, he's been around a long time, he's a hockey lifer, I don't think he's ever going to be resigned to a situation that's not going well, but just, uh, as I said off the top of the show, right, he sounds like he's at his wit's end. You know, like he's, he begins the presser saying, I don't understand it. I really don't have an answer. It's frustrating. I thought the new players would bring energy. Didn't happen. We work on it. We talk about it, right? Um, well, the, you can hear. The, I didn't think we had earned the right. I mean, that was a coach that was, you know, really quite shocked by the performance he saw last night. You know, like as much as. As much as we come on these airwaves and rant and rave about it, I guarantee you, he feels worse about it. Mm -hmm. Guarantee you. Oh, there's no doubt. And yeah. He, and he does a very good job of keeping it out of the public light to a certain extent, right? Like, it's not like he's in that presser. He's throwing the team under the bus and, you know, ripping them a new one. He's frustrated. He's extremely frustrated, but it's not uh, an angry tirade that's going to make, you know, uh, all the highlight shows that night. As Chet and Burnaby says, Bruce ain't even mad anymore. He's just disappointed. We've broke another one. <laughs> and there is that element. And the thing that really stood out to me is, one, how he kind of repeatedly said, you know, I don't understand X, whatever it is about the way the team's performing. And, you know, later in the, uh, later in the presser, I believe he was asked about 
what, you know, do you need to change your practice habits? And he said similar thing, right? I think we have some pretty good practices, but it just never translates to the games. I don't understand it. That stood out to me. And then the other thing is, you know, you asked him about uh, the East-West movement that other teams are able to generate. IMAC asked him about defending on the two-on-ones. And in both of them, he fully acknowledged that it's a major issue and said, yeah, we work on it all the time. We show them tape. We tell them what to do. We tell them how good teams do it. We tell them why it's important. And it never seems to translate. And just that open frustration of why am I not able to get through and actually change what this team is doing was really, really striking to me. The very Cartman, like, why can't I reach these kids? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it's oh, like, I man. don't know. Yes. I, we show them what to do, and then it doesn't happen. So how much – I mean, I, you know, I, I'm always By loath. the way, it's, it's, that was game 10 of the season. I know. That I'm was game al- 10 of the season. I'm always pretty loath to blame NHL players because these are proud – guys they they're enormously talented you know they're well compensated don't get me wrong but they're enormously talented people smart too they're really smart hockey guys across the board you do not get to this level if you're soft Mm. you do not get to this level if you're not competitive right you do not get to this level if your hockey iq isn't pretty close to off the charts with very rare exceptions for guys with remarkable physical tools who really don't care very rare though very rare and so you know I tend not to blame players. Like, I watch this team, and I see the elementary mistakes, particularly at the top end of the roster, and I acknowledge that they're happening, but I also just don't think... I don't know that anyone's being put in a position to succeed. I I don't know that what is being asked of most of these players is reasonable or is realistic if your hope is or your plan is to win at this at this level, right? Like, I don't think that this defense core as assembled, and I've been saying this for mm-hmm. more years than it became safe to say in this market, I don't believe that this defense core as assembled is compatible with the act of winning in the NHL, right? I don't think there's enough defensive awareness up front for this team, right? There's a lot of young players who are still figuring a few things out. Uh, there's just not enough heft in my view uh, in terms of that defensive conscientiousness you need to be a really good penalty-killing team, uh, to have really good matchup options to throw out the opposition's best. Um, I, I, I see instead of a bunch of redundancies, right? Like a, a bunch of like players who are good individually, but who are less than the sum of their parts as a group, which is why this team always looks so interesting in, on paper and is always a popular pick to upset the or crash the playoff picture in the West and then the games start to be played, and it looks the same as it ever has. So, you know, increasingly it does feel like there's an onus being put on the players in this room. I don't know that that's unfair, but for me it's insufficient. You know, I don't know how you could assemble this roster, how you could look at these options and think that Bruce has anything but, you know, a a knife. Like, he's wielding a knife at a gunfight every night. Every night, because this team can't move the puck like a contemporary NHL team, right? Do you want to blame the players for that? Or do you want to look at all of the moves that have have sort of caused us to arrive here? And the fact that this group was doubled down on despite management's pointed commentary 
about their performance over 57 games last year and say, you know, realistically, there's a bunch of guys here that are trying most nights, very rare exceptions, maybe one period you'd point to and say, hey, hated the, the effort that night, but just doesn't have the horses, doesn't have the horsepower, doesn't have the weaponry, isn't well built enough, right? That's my that's my gut reaction. Like, there's very few players on this Canucks roster that I don't think could be helpful in the right situation to a team. If their contract was the right contract, if they were in the right situation, if they were slotted appropriately, like there's almost no one on this roster that I don't think you could make use of on a good team in the right spot. In fact, I think there's a lot of guys that not just be useful, but like be impactful Probably, in the right situation. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. If you had if you had enough forward depth and enough defensive solidity up and down your lineup that you could cast Connor Garland as like a latter-day Phil Kessel on like a third line being like the driving offensive threat on a third line, I think that could be the sort of thing that puts a contender over the top, right? I'm not talking about that could work. I'm talking about could be the difference between a team making the playoffs and going deep. Could be like the ace up a sle- their sleeve for some team, right. for some playoff Like game, that's, yeah. you know, that's my regard for a, for a player like Garland. But here on the top line and sort of being asked to do a bunch of stuff. And in my opinion, he really just hasn't found chemistry with any of Vancouver's lefty centermen, which is hard to imagine considering his playmaking skills and the fact that he's right-handed. It, it's, you know, it feels like this team doesn't get the best out of him. And that's just, I, I just picked Connor Garland's mm-hmm. name out of a hat because I happen to be pretty high on the player. Uh, and because I thought it was sort of the best example in the first one that came to my mind. But yeah, I mean, at some point, the blame game must like we must aim higher in terms of it you know we we've done this like we've blamed last year we went through this management got blamed the coach got blamed repeatedly now we're seeing the same issues a year later right aren't i'm not hearing much about bruce boudreau magically fixing the canucks this year wonder what happened to that take and now the fingers are being pointed at boudreau again details practice habits zone exits the players. And to be fair. And at some point, yeah. it needs to be aimed higher. It needs to be aimed at the top. The fingers that it's are being pointed plan. at Boudreaux are not coming from the fans, by and large. No. Right, right. They're, or us in the media, I don't think. They're coming from I, elsewhere I in the organization. You. you know, the point about the kind but, of... Re- but the media's... The media's... At, I mean, the media, not not a, not a, a, a homogenous a monolith, group. Yes. Yeah, a monolith. But um, I do think Boudreaux's being asked, like, you know... Why isn't it being figured out at practice? Which is, by the way, a totally fair question. Well, what are you going to You got to ask the coach. Like, you have, you have to, to ask, ask the coach it. those sorts of questions. But I'm just saying, it's not like Boudreaux's skating. Sure. I don't think. And I don't think these players are skating. I think they're getting carved daily. Um, I, I just think at some point, the issue's the plan. The issue's the big picture failure. And, and anything that sort of picks around the edges of that focuses on that. That's like, that's like having this defense score and acquiring Dermot, Stillman, and Bear. It's insufficient. There's a structural issue. We need to focus on that. And we got to take a break quickly here. But, you know, the point about the kind of redundancies and the way the team is, there's individual talent, but it's all less than the sum of its parts. That's why it's really hard for me to get on board with the, you know what, we're working with the players and we're going to we're gonna make sure they learn those good habits and we're going to chip away at this and we're all working together and we're going to find a solution because there just might not be a solution. You know, I look at that power play goal that, the Devils score again, just right off the bat, off the opening faceoff of the power play. They win the faceoff, boom, 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 tap in goal, and it's you know Bo Horvat who 
loses the faceoff. That's obviously a major strength of his game, but to be fair, loses the faceoff. JT Miller's on the ice. Tyler Myers is on the ice. I'd have to check who the other player is, but none of those players you would look at as top caliber penalty killers, right? So it can be very frustrating. You see that goal happen and you say, why are the, why is there acres and acres of space in the middle of the ice that the Devils can thread these passes through? And you can wonder, man, why aren't the coaches closing that down? Why aren't the players executing it better? Those are all fair questions, but at a certain point, you also have to just think those aren't you're, – if you're expecting to have a really top-level penalty kill with those players – you're probably going to be disappointed. And over the course of an 82-game season, there are going to be breakdowns that look pretty ugly when those are the guys you're relying on to kill penalties. I thought that was a great illustration of that because there was just so much space, so much space in the middle of the ice on that goal. Uh, We'll take a quick break. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll read some of your texts uh, and continue chatting about everything going on with these Vancouver Canucks. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. It is Sportsnet 650, the home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, final segment of the show. Uh, It is a day off for the Canucks. No practice today. They are in action tomorrow night against the also struggling, but they've won a couple in a row now, but the also struggling Anaheim Ducks. Seven points in their first ten games. Uh, It will be. And no Jamie Drysdale. No Jamie Drysdale, yes. By the way. Um. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Ducks are. The Ducks have to be a free two points for this team. They just have to be. They are so disorganized at the moment. I've been really disappointed. I thought they had enough weaponry to at least be interesting, to at least be fun, and they really have not matched my like. The Arizona Coyotes are more fun because at least the Coyotes are lights out on the power play. And have some weirdness to them. And have my guy Kirill the Thrill. Right? <laughs> At least they have the Vegmelka effect. And you know I'm here for Vegmelka, even though we've never uh-huh. seen Vegmelka at his best against the Canucks. Every time the Canucks play the Coyotes, I warn about the Vegmelka effect. We saw it last night. But we've never seen it against the Canucks. The Canucks just crush the Coyotes every time they play. <laughs> anyway, the Ducks have to be a free two points. And I think they will be, by the way. Because I would bet on it. But I mean, look, we'll we'll preview the game more. I don't tomorrow, know. I don't know if you're going to get good value course, on the money line. No, probably bud. not. The other, the other factor, of course, with tomorrow is it's uh, Kevin Bieksa night, right? Honoring a uh, an icon, an extremely popular player in his day here. Of course, they're playing the Ducks, the only other team that he played for, and it does kind of have that feel of like. You know, just keep it together for one night, guys. You know what I mean? Like, we have company coming in from out of town. Just hold it together. <laughs> Be presentable for one night. Don't let it go south tonight of all nights, yeah. right? That That's the feel it has to me tomorrow. Like, oh come on. Goodness. We just got to put on a brave face here. Guys, if you're quiet and just watch TV downstairs, tomorrow yeah. we'll get Subway for lunch. Okay. Yeah. Just just be chill. Just be on your best behavior. We're, we're using the good China. Well, and I mean, look, we're going to be talking a little bit, not just tomorrow, but tomorrow's going to set off sort of 10 days in which, you know, one thing that's going to be hovering over this struggling team are the memories of the last great Canucks team, right? BX is going to sign a contract with the club tomorrow, 
and retire as a Vancouver Canuck. Fitting, by the way. Great Canucks career. Massively underrated, I, I think, during his playing days. It's weird. We've gone through a, the, the, the memory memory is an odd thing, right? Just mm. like how fans have convinced themselves that the flying skate jersey is fine, right? Because we all loved the teams that wore it, right? So we've completely abandoned any objective grading of aesthetic quality or, or composition or clarity in judging the flying skate logo. Which is a thing that happens in every city, by the way. For sure. Like the Detroit Pistons brought back the like Grand Hill era, like teal ones, and people are like, wow, that's fire. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's so <laughs> they're, ugly. They're, they're absolutely hideous. Uh, Anyways. In, 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 fairness, in fairness to the flying skate jersey, at least the colors are cool. Yeah. Right? At least the colors pop on television. It's just the logos. Uh, I, I'll never, I'll never be able to um, like it. Anyway, the okay. Sorry, I've gotten off track. But Bieksa was Bieksa has been such an awesome ex Canuck, right? Like he's been so lovable as an ex Canuck that people forget how often he was criticized as a player, right? And and Bieksa is one of those classic two way ace defenders who wasn't appreciated sufficiently for what he was able to do in his playing days. First of all, Bieksa was one of the guys on this on that last great Canucks team who always raised their game when it mattered. Like, there was that game six, no, game five, against the Chicago Blackhawks where the Canucks were down 3-1 in the series, right, having frittered it away. Bieksa, he has two goals in that game. Mm. He plays like 25 minutes. Throw, throws the types of hits that hurt, right? Played great. Was just so good. And then... All summer, because he sold out to try and block a Versteeg chance, everyone's talking about him swimming and how the Canucks should trade him to free up cap space, right? There's still this narrative that the Canucks would have had to trade him if not for Sammy Sallow's floorball injury, which isn't true, by the way. There were, there were all sorts of contingencies available to that management group. The thing about defensemen, particularly guys who play tough minutes is that sometimes they're going to look silly, especially against the best players in the world. And this market, when Bieksa was playing here, focused in on that a lot, a lot, and ignored the fact that he was really good defensively, the fact that he was capable of keying the game in transition even if he wasn't a regular PP1 guy, uh, the fact that his 5-on-5 five -five scoring rates were always top, top end, not, not top pair quality, 1A quality, in terms of what he generated, just five on five. Speaking just five on yeah, five. Multiple 40-point seasons without ever being a first option on the power play. All of which is to say, I'm happy for Kevin that he's going to get celebrated in this fashion because he deserves it. He's honestly one of, without question, the top 10 defensemen in Canucks history. I think, he, I think you can sneak him higher up that list, to be totally honest. The statistical profile, the games played profile, probably seven or eight. But I think you can easily get him into the top five once you factor in the physical value he brought, the two-way value he brought, the defensive side of the game, which he was always severely underrated uh, for because fans, for whatever reason, when it came to, to Juice, liked to see the mistakes. And, and I'm glad that it's like he had to leave the organization and then retire for his quality as a player and a person who grew up in this organization and was part of the most exciting young core group that ever came of age and accomplished serious stuff in this league that this franchise has ever had. I'm glad that it's properly being appreciated. Like he, he went from being severely underrated to being properly rated. It's just that it took a, an awful lot of stuff after his playing days for him to get there. 
this text comes in, uh, someone who actually wanted to be a Canuck. And it's difficult not to when it's Kevin Bieksonite, right? And of course, he had the famous quote, you know, he ends up getting traded. He has the famous quote, like, I'm going down with the ship, right? When things are going off the rails. That means a lot, I think, to fans, right? He agreed in principle to his deal, the $4.6 million deal, which eventually gets traded to Anaheim for a second round pick, which the Canucks then bundle to the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Brandon Sutter deal. Whew! Uh, but he gets traded, uh, or he signs that trade the day after the Canucks lost Game 7. Agreed in principle. I, it wasn't announced for a few more days. But like he'll tell you the story, if you ever ask him about it, about getting the call from his agent. Like, oh, you know, Lawrence Gilman called me, and they want to do this deal. And he goes down, and they have the see the white of their eyes conversation. And like he basically agrees and commits to the organization in the wake of one of the most disappointing days in franchise history. Like, that's... A Canucks yeah. player right there. And it's hard not to, when you're thinking about Kevin Bieksa, look and, and just naturally think about how would he be carrying himself right now in this situation, the situation the current team is in. How would he be playing on the ice? How would he be talking to the media after the games? How it would be different and refreshing from a lot of what we're seeing. And the contrast is how much pretty my, unflattering for the current group. How much my rants would be getting called out every time I walked in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> that would be tough. Um, oh, look, <laughs> no, look, look, you're right, because this is sort of what I'm talking about. As the Canucks play Anaheim with BX in the building, right? Then they'll play one more game against a Nashville Predators team that really hasn't been up to snuff since sweeping the Sharks in, in Europe. What in early October, like a week before the season even began. Uh, they then go, and once you get to Eastern Canada, the spotlight gets withering, right? Maybe not so much in Ottawa, but Ottawa's playing well. Mm -hmm. Then you're in Montreal, second leg of back-to-back, and then you're in Toronto. And you know who else is in Toronto? Henrik and Daniel and their traveling party. Roberto Luongo and his traveling party. A ton of other Canucks alumni who are playing in that Hall of Fame game on the Sunday night. While the Canucks are playing Boston, by the way, little bit of uh, fun symmetry there, or deeply unfun symmetry, as as you prefer. And then on Monday, when really the most Canuck-centric Hall of Fame night in the history of that hallowed institution will take place. And that you could ever hope to see. <laughs> yeah, three guys like, from the same team. That doesn't happen a lot. No, and they're, and To they're, any team. They're all really excited to be going in together. It's going to be a really cool night for Canucks fans. Um, I'm really looking forward to being there. But when you sort of think about it, right? When you just sort of zoom out, there's a real contrast, right? And not not just in terms of performance, though that's obvious, not just in terms of accolades and accomplishment, but but in terms of what that group was, what that group meant. I, I hope someone asks Yannick Hansen to sort of relive it because they all... Ryan Kessler wasn't a 40-goal scorer. Not, not on true talent, but he became it. Henrik and Daniel Sedin were probably not Art Ross winners. Not year after year anyway, right? Like, they weren't Connor McDavid. But for for a four-year stretch, they played like it. Maybe not to McDavid's extent, but certainly they were the best players in the league. Points-wise, they played like Crosby and Ovechkin for a four- or five-year stretch. They became the apex versions of what they could ever possibly be. Kevin Bieksa. Kevin Bieksa was a fifth-round pick who had to punch out a guy to earn an NHL contract. And he became a bona fide top pair guy. Dan Hamuse, right? Dan Hamuse was like seen Alex, as a. Alex Burrows. I mean, all of these. He's guys. playing roller hockey dancer. Alex Edler was an all star, right? I mean, it's it's wild. Yeah. Alex, Alex Burrows played for the Greenville Growl, and there's like five R's in Growl. 
Truly, there is. So, you know, it's that thing that matters, right? Those Canucks teams were really good on paper, too, but they also featured 10 to 15 guys, all of whom leveled up, leveled up together, pushed each other, right? Had that internal drive to become more than the sum of their parts. For whatever reason, we just haven't seen this group accomplish that yet. In fact, to a man, it feels like, I mean, with the exception of like Bo Horvat's goal scoring and I guess JT Miller had the career year, but I mean, they're, they're kind of one-offs. There's not this like sustained push to get better as a group at the act of winning games. And at the end of the day too, while you give credit to the players who accomplished that, right? To me, that's also on the environment. That's also on the organization itself, right? And it's a tough look. Austin and Langley text in. Uh, I can't. I can't help but think that Juice is the type of guy you keep around for a retool rebuild. Not the Roussel Beagle types. He bled blue and green. All hard work. That's from Austin and Langley. And I also made the comparison. Well, Tan, Tan, Tan of and Edler. Yeah, Tan of and Edler are your perfect. Like, look how much this team has missed that. Right. I'd add Markstrom. By the way, Markstrom carried a bit, a lot of weight in that locker room. A lot of weight. And I, I mean, those absences. Losing those guys over the span of 10 months, devastating. No question. Uh, and I also made the comparison to, you know, you're just hoping the Canucks can keep it together for one night while company is in town. And Rager says, it's like that scene in Harry Potter where he's supposed to be quiet and it ends up with the guest having a cake smashed <laughs> on their head at the end of the night. Hopefully it doesn't end up like that tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk more about Bieksa, uh, maybe even have him on the station at some point tomorrow, hopefully, fingers crossed. But uh, it will be his big night tomorrow. We'll get into the game and and more about Bieksa tomorrow on the show. I did want to um, read this text and... It says uh, maybe tomorrow they should start Spencer Martin instead of Demko. And I know before the show you were kind of trying to bait me into uh, going in on Thatcher Demko a little bit, but well, I don't I just, know. I just want to disagree with you on something, and I think the Demko criticism is I way he, over the top. I thought he made some pretty good saves. Yeah. Like, okay, he spills the rebound on one. No, he spills the rebound. Okay. But even that, it's like, No, oh, no, no. Right. It was deflected on the way. If a puck is deflected... If it changes direction and you still make the initial stop and then there's no box out coming and it's not it's not like it's not like he gave away a rebound that went six feet and then the guy had time to set and put it in. It was right off his pad onto a stick. I mean, sure, would you rather he batted away with his stick? Sure, but when it changes direction, you can't blame that on the goalie. And the thing that is, wasn't a soft goal. Let's say that okay, that was it might be one where you'd love to have a stop, like, oh, we'd love to have sure. a stop, sure. But it's not a soft goal. So I would say that was that was the if you were looking to find flaws with Demko's game last night, that would be the goal you point to. Well, but I would add on. I would add that he was having trouble squeezing shots. I would sure, say it that didn't, to it me, didn't come back to burn him. Yeah, he didn't yeah. look he didn't look like Demko because he was having trouble getting shots to stick to him more than the goals that beat him. But the thing is, even on that goal where the rebound comes out, if you were to kind of watch the play develop and diagnose all of the things that went wrong on that play, where does Thatcher Demko end up on the list of, you know, things that led to that goal? Sixth. Right? Like, there's battles lost behind the net. There's no box out in front of the net. Go down the list. Guys are getting outworked by the fourth line for the New Jersey Devils. And and the fourth line is faster than any line the Canucks have. How's that even possible? 
So you can say, oh man, you'd love to get a save from Thatcher Demko. Yeah, sure. And look, I'm not saying he's been great this season or anything. Of course, you can look back and say, you know what? You'd love to have a save there. You'd love to have a save there. And one of his calling cards He has just been- hasn't been the problem. And any conversation trying to cast him as the problem is, again, like, Thatcher Demko, the, the expectations cannot be that he has to be a latter-day Dominic Ashik every game for this team to win anything. Right? Like, at some point, you have to be able to win a game for your goalie. And I don't want to have... This is like the lowest possible stakes version of the Luongo playoff argument. <laughs> you know, like, this, at some point, you got to win a game for your goalie. At some point, you're got, you got to win a 5-4 game if yeah. you're going to win a Stanley Cup. Well, the thing is, they're not losing games 6-5. Like, last night, they couldn't generate anything. They scored two goals. Yeah. And one of them's because they pulled the goalie with a power play yeah. with three minutes left in the game. So even if he shuts the door and limits New Jersey to, you know, two goals, guess what? There's a good chance they're still going to lose that game. Even if he gets across on one of those two-on-ones and somehow eliminates that chance. I mean, come on. It's it's outrageous. The amount of the amount of east-west puck movement too that the Canucks are surrendering. You know, like I saw some criticism of one of the two-on-one goals from fans that he was too deep in his net. Well, if you want to play out you have to trust your defenseman to take away the pass. You have to play the shooter aggressively. You want to know what looks really silly? A goalie taking the shooter aggressively only to get passed around. Right? I mean, this comes back to a conversation I had recently with a very smart ho- hockey guy. And he said to me, who's the best puck mover of the last 15 years? And I said, Eric Carlson. And he said, no, Eric Carlson's the best breakout skater of the past 15 years. He said the best breakout passer of the past 15 years is Zidane O'Shara. And I said, really? Why? And their response was, Zidane O'Chara, because you knew he was coming out with the puck from the wall, was worth 20 feet to his forwards on every single play he made, right? Any other defenseman goes along, goes into the wall on an engagement and you have to skate 10 feet back to make sure that you're there to cover in case they lose the battle. With Chara, you knew he was going to win the battle. You knew he was going to emerge from the puck. So he's worth 10 feet right there. And then when you get the pass, you're 10 feet further up ice than you would be otherwise. Every time there's an engagement along the wall, he said, Zidane Chara is worth 20 feet. Right? And that's partly what happens when you have a breakdown in trust. Right? That's partly what happens with Canucks forwards. Partly why this team can't move the puck. It's also why Thatcher Demko's deep in his net. Right? He can't take the shooter. He doesn't know that the pass isn't coming. It's a really tough spot for this team to be in. Now, having said that, I have no problem playing Spencer Martin tomorrow. Like, no problem whatsoever. Spencer Martin's been really good. I don't have an issue with that. I get you have to get Demko going at some point. You want to get Demko going. Yeah, give him the cupcake. If you're gonna if you really want to start Spencer Martin on this homestand, I, I think you give him Nashville. I think you gotta give you got to get Demko feeling good about himself, and this is the best opponent you're going to have to do that for a while, right? I mean, Montreal works too hard, as Eric Engels says. Um, they're playing pretty well. They, they play so hard for Marty St. Louis. That's been a really good fit for a rebuilding team. Um, Ottawa's got a ton of firepower. The Maple Leafs are obviously reeling, but also they're the Maple Leafs. They've you know? got firepower. Yeah, and then you've got Boston. Not an easy building to play in, and that team, by the way, is picking their teeth with opponents at the moment. And then you go into Buffalo, and we all know what happened last time this team played Buffalo. Also, doesn't Tage Thompson have something like eight points, nine points in his last two games? My goodness. 
You're playing a yes. Marvel. You're playing. You're playing an Avenger when you play the Buffalo Sabers. So despite not dressing up like Wayne Gretzky on Halloween, <laughs> no, he, he dresses up like Thor every night. <laughs> um. So anyway, I mean, there's no easy answer to this. I don't envy the task at hand for Canucks management, and I don't have a problem with Demko just closing out this homestand. A couple but, of quick texts. On, but I, I would play him tomorrow for sure. Yeah, a couple of quick de- uh, texts here on Demko to end the show. Jazzy says, Demko struggling is a blessing in disguise. This management group needs to have the need for the rebuild uh, shoved down their throat in order to realize the team's lackluster composition. Demko not being able to conceal the Canucks' flaws is actually a good thing. The thing is, the management was very open, very open about the fact that they realized Demko was covering up a lot of flaws with this team last year. It should be something that they are already well aware of. And then this text uh, comes in unsigned that I think does a good job of summing it up. He says, if Demko had played like a top 10 goalie this year, the, the Canucks would still be a 500 team. He's regressed, but so has half the team. And again, there's no level of performance from a goaltender. That would salvage what the Canucks have put up so far this year and turn them into a playoff contender, right? So, yes, you can say Demko needs to be better. That's 100% true, but you're probably talking about climbing from, you know, dead last in the league to 20th, something like that at the point. And that's if Thatcher Demko is being really, really good. Again, not saying he can't be better, uh, but to pin the issues that this team is having on Thatcher Demko, I do not think is fair in the least. Thank you to everyone for listening today, for texting in. Great feedback all day. We got fired up today. We'll be back tomorrow to get fired up. Talk about Kevin Bieksa. Talk about the game uh, with the Ducks. That's coming up tomorrow. Next on the station, it is the PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich here on Sportsnet 650.